A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Elna Baker, sitting in for Ira Glass. Kids have a stage where they learn to be embarrassed. It begins when they're toddlers, but some of us don't seem to take the lesson to heart. Like my friend Jane Marie. I've known Jane for years. She used to work at the radio show, and her shamelessness was the quality I most admired about her. Especially as a woman. You know, she didn't care what people thought. Am I acting nice? Am I dressed too sexy? Am I being loud? She didn't ask those questions. She was totally opinionated and scrappy. Jane was never embarrassed. And for a pretty specific reason. The way she grew up, she was Methodist. She was taught, you are not the center of the universe. Which made her feel free. Like no one was watching. To be embarrassed would to be would would be to assume that anyone in this room or anyone who witnessed this actually spends more than five seconds thinking about me. And they don't. Why would you think anyone but God gives a shit about anything you're doing ever? They don't. Like you are nothing. You mean nothing in the world. It's obnoxious, basically, <laughs> to think that like any of your actions that anyone's actually looking in your direction. This worldview, that others weren't judging her, helped her not judge herself. Those thoughts just didn't occur to her. Did you have an inner critic? What do you mean by inner critic? Like a voice that (laughs) is... That's actually (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm like, come again? So I was surprised when she texted me and said she'd heard I was looking for embarrassing stories to put on today's radio show, and that she had one, a big one, that she'd never told anyone but her therapist, something that changed who she was. And I'll get to that story in about a minute. But first, let me just say, I love embarrassing stories. I always ask for them at parties. If I hear a good one, I'll retell it for years. Some of them, so funny. But that's not the only reason I like them. I think the best ones say so much about us, reveal sides of ourselves maybe we'd rather not see. And to prove the point that embarrassing stories have a lot to teach us, I decided to harness the power of the radio program, and we asked you for your embarrassing stories. People sent in over a thousand of them. Today we'll hear some of those and talk about what they reveal. But we're going to kick things off with Jane's story. Because, honestly, of the hundreds of embarrassing stories that I've heard, I've never heard another one like Jane's where it changed someone so deeply. Her story is our first act. Let's call it Belle of the Gaul. Jane's story starts at a big charity event at a bougie hotel in Beverly Hills. The night is a fundraiser for children with epilepsy. It's held in a grand ballroom with fine china and excessive centerpieces, and some of the most powerful producers and executives in Hollywood. This is not Jane's scene. She's there because she's interviewing for a job, a job with a big studio a job that would be a major leap for her and pay a ton more money than she'd ever made. They'd met with her several times for interviews, and they'd invited her tonight and paid for her ticket as a kind of, you know, fun, looser, let's go do something more social and see how we all hit it off. Knowing where it's held and knowing it's a gala, Jane wears a ball gown, a two-piece dark green dress that shows off her midriff with a giant billowy skirt. She walks into the event, and to her surprise, People were wearing, like, business casual instead of, like, it wasn't black tie. And so I'm overdressed. 
they're passing around champagne flutes. I grab one, but promise myself I'm only going to have half of this one glass of champagne before we sit down at the table. Like, I am going into this with full control of myself. Like, I am... You're there to make a good impression. I am there to make a great impression on these people. I want to work with them, and I want them to think I'm respectable. And it's a weird thing. Like, I hate that I still have to talk about the world this way, but, like, when you're the only woman at the table or one of two women at a table, and they're all, like, old, older, white dude CEO types who have, in a certain way, have your future in their hands, it doesn't feel great. In the ballroom of maybe 500 guests, they're seated at the main table, front and center. During dinner, Jane's looking for her opportunity to shine, a moment when they'll get to know her better. But it's not coming. The CEO guys are all talking over her. There's no moment to jump into the conversation. No one seems curious about her at all. So they're, they they get to the auction portion or the fundraiser portion of the evening and there's a you know a person up on stage who's like calling the the auction and they say all right let's get things kicked off here Jane has an idea one time the only other time she's been to a gala they'd had an auction too and to surprise her table as a joke when they started the bidding before any of the celebrities that night Lady Gaga or Angela Bassett or Heidi Klum could get in a bid Jane raised her paddle. It was for an item that was tens of thousands of dollars. Jane was broke. Her friends at the table knew she couldn't afford it. But she figured, I'm surrounded by rich people. Someone will absolutely outbid me. And they did. The item went for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Everyone thought it was hilarious. So she looks at this table of CEOs and thinks, I know how to spice up the evening because I've done it before. Um, I'm going to throw my paddle up again. <laughs> I'm going to throw my paddle up again, get things cranking, have a funny story for our table to laugh about. And so they open the bidding. And what I hear is we're going to start the bidding out at $25,000. And I shoot my paddle up in the air with the same confidence that like it'll get outbid immediately and then we're moving on and then we're cooking with gas and everybody's like, you're a blast, you know. Jane feels a rush. Ha, that was fun. She waits to be outbid. And I had somehow not heard that this round of bidding was really just, it wasn't something that anyone else could bid on. It was not an auction at all. It was a pledge. So it was a $25,000 pledge from the eight people sitting at my table. It all happened, like, really quickly. Like, after I raised the paddle, they were like, yay! And they put the name of our table and everyone at our table, like, up on this board. Like, there was a TV screen, a large TV screen hanging from the ceiling. And the name of the company I was with and our table number and the amount of my pledge and I look over, and the one person I know best at the table, it, it looks like he's having a, a hives, like an attack. Everyone else is just slack-jawed. Oh, my God, Jane, what did you just do? What did you just do? What did you just do? And I'm, and they're, like, mouthing this or even just saying it out loud, depending on how close they are to me. They all just stared at me. And we're like, how are you going to fix this um, for our table? 
Sometimes when something embarrassing happens to you, you exaggerate it in your head, think it's a bigger deal than it was. But in this case, no. I wish I could take this away from Jane and tell her her memory's wrong. Her memory's not wrong. Because I'm here to tell you, yes, it was that bad. It really was. It was that bad. You're not making that up. That's Adam Davidson, Jane's only friend at the table. He's the guy who broke out into hives. As I'm remembering it, it's just that feeling of wah, 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 wah. The universe is different now. The universe is fix it, fix it. We're off course. Eh, eh, eh. You know, like that kind of emergency. Right. So part of the panic is like, if if I don't stop this, I'm going to have to pay $25,000. Uh, yeah, because I thought I would. What if, what if there's no way out of this and I have to like max out all my credit cards? No, I really was like, can you... Okay, because I don't have an auction experience also. I'm like, can you take it back? She decides to try. At the other end of this giant ballroom, there's an exit. Jane thinks, there will be people in charge there. They can help me. So she bolts up out of her chair and heads there, fast as she can. Through, you know, dozens of tables full of people. I mean, I really was having to be like, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me. Like, just, I gotta get out of here. So I get through the double doors at the back of the room as quickly as I can, and it slams shut behind me. Who's running the auction, she yells. A volunteer points her to a woman with a laptop. Jane rushes over and explains it's all a mistake. I don't have money. The woman is surprisingly understanding. She says, what would you like to do? What do you want me to do? I was like, well, I just need to, like, I take it back. Like, I can't spend that money. And she's like, okay. And then bleep, bleep, blorp, she's in her computer. And what I... And I say, thank you, okay. And then I walk back into the ballroom and I'm looking up at that, the leaderboard essentially of all the pledges and we're at the top and then it disappears. <laughs> like right as I walk back in the room, it felt like a spotlight was turned on. Like the whole room turned around. The whole room, to it's record you. scratch. And everyone knows that I just took $25,000 away from this charity. But of course, it wasn't Jane's name that was on the screen. It was the company's, the one she's hoping to work for. So very quickly, it wasn't, oh, Jane did this. It was our table did this. Again, Jane's friend, Adam. And it wasn't like we went from first to second or first to third. We went from number one to like the bottom. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was embarrassed. I think everyone at the table was embarrassed. Yes, we were embarrassed. <laughs> like, wouldn't you be embarrassed? And so I get back to the table and I sit down and have kind of like a, <laughs> wasn't that, you know, like a nervous laugh. Um, no one is enjoying that. And so I just start focusing on anything but the people around my table. Um, I'm just really intently listening to the auctioneer guy and, 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 and we have to watch this really sad video that's like a mini documentary about the children that were supposed to be there to help. Um, and they dim the lights. The movie is about 15 minutes long. The music is emotional. It's parents and their children with epilepsy talking about how scared and sad they feel, how much they need treatment. Sitting there in the dark watching this, this is the moment that hits Jane the hardest. It's not when everyone looks at her. It's when she realizes what she's actually done. She'd only thought of this evening as an opportunity for her to make an impression. 
that was gross what I did. It was gross and wrong. Mm-hmm. And watching these children with this illness on a big screen, I was just like, I am the worst person on the earth that I bid and then I took it back. And then I said, no. And there's like a part of me that was like, oh, could I just like take out a few more credit cards or something? And then it's like a tidal wave of what just happened and what I did and how mortifying it is. Just the layers of like the reasons I should be embarrassed and criticizing myself. You know, why would you even do that? Like, why would you do that? And then when you did do it, why would you try to get out of it? The answers to those questions are uncomfortable because they force Jane to see things about herself she doesn't like. Embarrassment can do that. It can show you your blind spot. It exposed a fatal flaw that I have to pay a lot of attention to now. And what is that fatal flaw? Um, Hubris. Something about that made me feel like my confidence like had bad consequences, you know? That there was something bad about it. The night ends. She doesn't get the job. And she has it on pretty good authority that the decision boiled down to her big mistake that night. This stings, but that's not the crux of what that night did to her. It has actually changed a lot about how I um, act in public. Like, I'm just much more self-conscious after that. Really? Like, I used to get super pumped about going to a party, and now that's kind of fraught. I know this is going to sound counterintuitive, but, like, I've started leaving the house sometimes without makeup because it's like I don't want people thinking that I'm thinking about what they're thinking, if that makes sense. (laughs) I don't want anyone to think I put makeup on for them. This is like the weirdest stuff that now pops into my head about like what other people are thinking, where I wish I just didn't care. I've always been that way, worrying what other people are thinking about me. And I can't imagine what it would be like to discover this as a full-on adult. Jane says everything feels different to her now. I feel completely neutered a lot of the time. Really? (laughs) You know, yeah, I do. I feel like um, it made me second-guess myself a lot, I guess. I I used to write essays about parenting and sex, and, you know, um, I would give advice, and I would uh, go on radio shows, and now I'm just like, shut up, Jane, shut up, Jane, shut up, Jane, shut up, Jane. Shut up. No one is asking, and no one wants to hear it. It's crazy to me that you can uh, do something embarrassing once, and suddenly you have that inner policeman for the rest of your life. Is there anything that can make it go away, you think? I don't know. Um, What could change it? I don't know. I just don't even have the desire. Like, it doesn't... It's like, why would I want to change it so that I could, like, put another ball gown on and go embarrass myself in front of a bunch of people? Like, no, that doesn't sound fun. You know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound fun anymore. Like, I don't think that the lesson I learned was necessarily all bad. And honestly, when I think about the old version of me, it was kind of gross in a way. You know? Like, that's just it's kind of obnoxious. It's a, it's like a, that's a baby.
I'd honestly never thought of embarrassment as being helpful to anyone. It pummels us, humiliates us. But Jane's glad this happened to her. She's glad for her new, awful self-consciousness. She says her ego is smaller now. Which means that with everyone in her life, she's quicker to admit when she's wrong and apologize. And overall, she says, it's calmed her down. She observes more, hangs back, never wants to be the center of attention. Which, she says, is a lot less hectic. Jane Marie is the host of the podcast, The Dream. Act two, Judgment Day. Part of the reason I'm interested in embarrassment is because of this realization I had recently. I'm so embarrassed of myself all the time. At least once a day, I break out into a rash from embarrassment. Like a couple of days ago when I learned from a coworker that all my life I've been mispronouncing the word incongruous. See? I get embarrassed when I think people are looking at my eyebrows or when other people see my dog poop. Embarrassment is on me all the time, and I want to get it off. And one of the ways my obsession with embarrassment has played out in the last few months is I'm in a group chat dedicated to it. There are four of us in it. One of the people, Kiese Lehman, I only met when we started this group. Anytime we feel embarrassed or do something embarrassing, we write to each other. It's how I know we've both worn Spanx for decades or that he's self-conscious of his hairline or how he walks. These little secrets you'd never know about someone otherwise. Sometimes we swap stories of past embarrassments. Like the time Kiese was teaching a class at Vassar College on hip-hop as literature, and the alumni magazine wanted to do a story on him. This was back when he was in his 20s. They did the interview, and then a photographer comes to take his picture. So we're in the library, and I'm like, where do you need me to stand? And they're like, well, could you crouch? And I was like, huh? <laughs> I ain't never crouched before the for the photographs before. And they were like, you know, crouch and like do something cool with your hands. And I was like, what do you what do you want me to do? And and then the lady says, um, could you do rap hands? And I'm just like, wait a minute now. <laughs> you want me to do rap hands in a picture that's going to accompany an article about my teaching hip-hop as literature and hip-hop and literature. And you know my stupid ass did that shit? Like, (laughs) I'm doing rap hands, fam. Like, I can't lie to you. So then the fucking article comes out, and my students, particularly my black students, are like, bruh, you teach about representation, stereotypes, um fetishization there's nothing ironic about this picture you look like a fucking fool (laughs) wannabe rapper slash professor doing crouch rap hands I know so many of Kiese's day-to-day screw-ups from our embarrassment group but it's funny I never asked him an obvious question all right so uh I guess I think, you know, I'm coming into this totally blind, so I don't know what you're about to tell me. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's your most embarrassing story? (laughs) My most embarrassing story has to do with Heavy. Um, So I wrote this book called Heavy. 
I've been spending my entire life trying to write it. And I needed to write it to help my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my body. Um, but also, you know, it's a book that I wanted my grandmama to really be proud of. The New York Times names Heavy one of the best 50 memoirs in the last 50 years. A lot of the book is about Kiese's shame around his weight. He went from being 319 pounds to anorexic, getting down to 159, then gaining it back, then losing some. By exposing everything about his struggle with his weight, he overcomes it. Near the end of the book, he writes, I am no longer ashamed of this heavy black body. Something else he talks about, how important his grandma is to him. She's funny, the voice of reason in his life. And she's one of the only people who's never on his case about his weight. In Heavy, he writes about his grandmother. She responsibly loved me and never harmed me. He's disappointed her many times. Got kicked out of college, lost all his money to gambling. But writing this book was a way to prove to her he's not his failures. And it's his attempt to fully explain himself. By the time it comes out, I think I won a lot of awards and uh, that I did not expect to win. And with every award, I just was like, yo, my granny is going to be proud of me. Two months after the book is published, he flies home to Jackson, Mississippi for Christmas. It's the first chance he gets to celebrate the book's success with his whole family. And he brings a stack of books, each of which he's signed with a dedication to each family member. He runs into the living room with a big smile on his face. Everyone's there. He heads straight to his grandma and gives her a big hug. She looks up at me. And then she looks over to my mama and she says, is this key? And then she's like, yeah, mama, that's key. And I said, grandmama, how you what you asking (laughs) am I me for? Um, And she just straight up said, because you're so fat, baby. He looked way too fat to be key. Hmm. And um, she said it in front of my family. She said in front of my little cousin, Nicole. And I just started sweating. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Am I having a panic attack right now? And at the time, I I didn't understand why. Like, I didn't think I was having a panic attack because of embarrassment or shame at my grandmother calling me fat. It was some combination of humiliation, shame, and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment often get lumped together. But what makes embarrassment distinct is it's always tied to other people. You need an audience to be embarrassed. Like, I can be ashamed in my house by myself. <laughs> yes. Totally. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I can be in shame, like a boiling pot of shame. But embarrassment to me is much more, like, dramatic, right? Like, I feel like in, when you ask me stories about embarrassment, they're all going to be stories about, like, like how somebody saw me because if my if I came in my house and there was nobody there but my my granny and she did that it would hurt I mean it would it would hurt but it would not come close to that hurt of having her say it in front of the entire family and the family doing their version of looking down you know we're gonna act like we didn't hear that when everybody heard it. So 
I just walked right back out of the house, got in my car for a second, tried to get my breath right. And I had some Xanax because I was on book tour early and I use Xanax to sleep on the planes. So I was like, yo, should I take a half of Xanax? Like, what the fuck is going on with me? I didn't know what was what was happening. So I did and I took the Xanax, one of the Xanax, and I went back in the house, tried to do it again. Went back to my granny, walked in the room. Granny, hey, blah, 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 blah. Key. Boy, I don't know how you got so fat, but you need to stop eating. And 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 I think the shameful part was like I could write all the books in the world I wanted to. I could write one of those books um, as good as I could ever write them. But I was still going to look and feel not just fat, but gross to my family. Did you also feel like you had in writing a book and working as hard as you possibly could to look at this stuff that you had overcome the capacity to feel so ashamed of yourself. Yes. I I thought in writing about among other things like body and sex, fatness and sex. I I I did. I fooled myself into believing that I was delivered from it. And I think when I came in the room thinking the heavy would shield me from their critiques and and being greeted initially um you know and then my grandmother calling me fat looking at me like I'm fat not seeing anything but a fat ass you know middle-aged man when she looks at me is is kryptonite is my kryptonite She'd always been the one person who'd never judged him. And when he tries to make sense of this turnaround, the best he can come up with is, with the success of the book and the money it brought in, she now saw him as a man. And in her eyes, men were supposed to be productive and lean. He spends the next few days with his grandma, and she keeps bringing it up. It looks like he ate key. He's as big as a house. How did he get so fat? And I just think that was embarrassing. To think yeah. that a book was going to change your life and make you not look and feel fat to your family and to the person who means the most in the world to you. And it, and it, and the book didn't matter at all. Oh, it's crushing. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I have to laugh my way through all of that. But yeah, it, it felt pretty crushing. But this isn't something he tells people in everyday conversation. Honestly, when I asked him for his most embarrassing story, I expected the kind of funny story you tell at a party. That's usually what he delivers when people start telling these kinds of stories. Something more like rap hands. That embarrassment and the embarrassment I felt in my granny's house, in some way, I don't even know if they should be called the same word. Mm -hmm. Because I literally, like, I like telling that story. I've never told the story I told you about my granny because I don't like remembering that. I don't like telling it. You know what I'm saying? So totally. I mean, because there's certain things that you can you can laugh at. Right. Uh, but you can't laugh at the thing that makes you want to die. Yeah. I mean, the embarrassing stories that I tell are always not true. Like, like the drama of the story will be true, but 
I'm going to hide that mushy, sometimes toxic center that thinks telling embarrassing stories will make people like me more. You know what I mean? So when I'm telling embarrassing stories, a part of the story I'm not telling is I'm going to tell y'all this story because I feel very fucking insecure and I want to make you feel or laugh. So if I'm not telling that part of the story, I'm being dishonest in the storytelling. And most of us aren't telling that part of the story when we tell like these self deprecating stories about whatever. I'm only telling you this story because I want to control the velocity and pace at which you like me. (laughs) That's what I think those stories lack. They lack the the, uh, the the preamble. They lack the sad history that makes you need to tell a funny story in the first place, he says. And maybe that makes sense. Who wants to bring that up at a party? Kiese Lehman is the author of Heavy and Long Division. Coming up, a date that ends in nudity, but absolutely not the kind that you might want. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Elna Baker, sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's show, My Bad. Today we're looking at embarrassing stories and what those reveal about us. We're at Act 3, Trauma-Rama. Like I mentioned earlier, we asked you listeners to share your most embarrassing stories. We got hundreds of Facebook and Instagram messages and nearly a thousand emails. Okay, quick note. Embarrassing stories can sometimes involve bodily functions, and we have one or two like that. If that's not your thing, don't say I didn't warn you. Anyway, these stories you sent in. I invited the regular host of this show, Ira Glass, in to share those. Hey there, Anna. Hi, Ira. So, um, can I ask you something? Okay, you said earlier that you get embarrassed every day. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, yeah. I had something really embarrassing happen to me two nights ago per this show. What was it? I was started with tripping and falling. I, I was carrying a pizza on a plate, and I tripped, and it fell face forward onto the couch. Uh-huh. This and, is in your own home? No, this is at the guy I'm seeing, right? So it, it, and it was like a white couch, so it's stained, so I'm cleaning it up. And then... There was like a perfect piece of mozzarella curl, and I, you know, fell, so I shouldn't have eaten it, but I wanted to eat it. So I picked it up out of the, like, it was stuck in the couch. Mm-hmm. I picked it up and ate it, and as I bit in, I realized. <laughs> it was not that It was a full toenail, like a big toe toenail. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was so... It looked like mozzarella. <laughs> Mozzarella has three dimensions to it. A toenail—it's the grossest thing I've ever done. I don't think that's on you. I think that that's on him for leaving the toenail in the, in the couch. Cou- he should have been embarrassed. Yeah, but the, the needle that needed to be threaded, like for me to pick up a toenail and put it into my mouth—the sequence of events—that would be the only reason I did that—happened seamlessly. And was he watching? Yeah. And he was embarrassed, too. He was very embarrassed. Well, because it was his toenail. Yeah. He goes, that just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like me. And I was like, well, it, it, whose toenail is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody broke into your apartment, <laughs> cut their nails, didn't dig anything, and left. I've been reading about that in the New York Post. <laughs> 
happening all the time. Okay, but we're not here to talk about me. We have all of these listener embarrassing stories I want to share with you. Yes, and I am very curious about what you found. All right. So one of the things that stood out to me most from reading all these emails is that so many people wrote in saying, I'm the only person who could have possibly done this. Mm -hmm. And then five emails later was someone in the inbox with the exact same story. Really? Yeah. Like there were 16 women who wrote in with epic period fails. I have to say that's one you could kind of anticipate. Yeah. But you couldn't anticipate that three people were mistakenly the reason that a bomb squad got called in. Okay, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Or two people showed up dressed above and beyond to a costume party. Right. Only to find out that uh, it was the wrong day, which also actually happened to me. So what was the, like, like okay, so, so there are these, I guess, different categories of responses? Yeah, basically, like, the same things came up over and over again. Okay, break down the big ones. I want to hear, like, what what's the number one? So I would say the biggest one, the number one was bathroom stories. Like, mm. a quarter. A quarter of the people who wrote us, bathroom stories. Followed by naked stories. That's number two. Number two. Not, the ba- not the- to be confused with number two. <laughs> I will say both of those are so uh, basic. I think that people get embarrassed by the things that you were told not to do when you were a kid. Like, people don't be naked. Don't be naked. Use the bathroom. Exactly. And so those are the biggest categories. And then what do the rest break down into? Little kind of like various piles. You know, there's like embarrassing yourself in front of a crush. Mm-hmm. 65 people wrote in about that. Wow, 65 people. Yeah. yeah. Or embarrassing yourself in front of your boss or a celebrity. 79 people. Mm-hmm. I like that those two are clumped together. Keep going. <laughs> Tripping and falling. In, usually at an important event. Mm-hmm. That was 35 people. And then there were people who were caught in a lie. All right. So um, tell me one like that, getting caught in a lie. Okay. So there's this guy, Will. Uh, he told a lie for very understandable reasons. In middle school, he's ruthlessly bullied for being Haitian. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is like during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Our country actually banned people from Haiti from entering the U.S. Because of AIDS. Exactly. And, you know, there were jokes about Haitians on late night TV. And and so in middle school, Will is picked on all the time for being Haitian. He's beat up. He's teased. So, boom. I go to high school, ninth grade, new year, new location. This is a location far away from my home. New kids, new teachers, ninth grade going well. Two months in, getting some friends, and then one of the one of the kids asked me, "Yo, you got an accent? Where you from?" I'm like, "Oh shit, here we go again." And so these days, like other kids waiting for a response, and I just remember I'm like, "Yo, I'm I'm Jamaican," and they're like, "Oh, whoa, yeah, man, hey, pop, pop, pop," and I was like, "Oh shit, now I gotta be Jamaican for the rest of my life," and I just remember like. During my conversations with people, I would just throw in, you know, Jamaican phrases like, yo, did you do a homework? Bo, 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 yo, I didn't understand the lesson, blood clot. You know, just saying that just to, you know, keep up this Jamaican image. It sounds to me like you didn't even really know much about being Jamaican. I didn't know anything about being, I, I knew very little about being Jamaican. I just, I knew how they sounded from, um, from their music, but... You know, it was all just, I took the stereotypes of Jamaicans and I became that. So he pulls this lie off for three years. Wow. Yeah. At school, he's the Jamaican kid. 
But then another Jamaican kid, like an actual Jamaican kid, shows up and everyone's like, oh, you, you got to meet Will. Oh, that's not good for him. Nope. And then, and then he just started questioning me. Oh, where you where from? Where where you find me from? And I'm just making stuff up. I was just freestyling it. Then he paused and said, that boy not Jamaican. And I was like, oh, shit, oh, shit. And I just said, no, 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 no. You're from Jamaica. I'm from Jamaica, Queens. I'm not even from Jamaica, Queens. I'm not from Queens at all. I'm from Brooklyn, East New York. (laughs) Okay, so that's people caught in a lie. Uh, Tell me another category. Okay, so I especially love the category of embarrassing stories where people try to avoid embarrassment. And in doing that, they embarrass themselves. Okay, let me hear one like that. Okay, so this happened to this lady, Mary Gray, from Murals Inlet, South Carolina. So she's a bridesmaid whose dress arrives, and it's way too small. Day of the wedding, she convinces another bridesmaid, one size up, to swap dresses with her. Okay. This dress fits, but it's it's tight. Mm-hmm. And so she starts to get this irrational fear that if she's bulging out of her dress, she's going to upstage the bride and groom. Oh, like people will look at her instead of— Exactly. Uh-huh. This cannot happen. And then this idea hits her, saran wrap. So I go into the kitchen— I find the saran wrap, I get it out, and I just start wrapping. (laughs) And I go around and around and around until I am cinched and the dress zips up beautifully. And I think, yeah, this is going to work. This is actually genius. And out the door I go. So she's standing in 105-degree heat at the altar. South Carolina. Next to the bride and groom. Mm -hmm. And there's a big crowd watching, and she just starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I can feel the sweat starting to kind of roll down my back. And I'm looking down at the floor, and I'm seeing spots. And I'm a fainter, so I know, I know what that means. Um, So I, as subtly as possible, I turn around to my groomsman partner and I ask him to unzip my dress. And of course, he has no idea what I'm talking about. And he's like, what? And I said, I need you to unzip my dress. So he does it. He unzips my dress. So now everyone knows (laughs) that I'm wrapped up in saran wrap. (laughs) And are you just mortified? I am just really focusing on not passing out. So I decide that I am going to take off. She ducks away, her dress is open, she misses the rest of the ceremony, gets some water. It's funny, her, her greatest fear was that she was going to upstage the bride and groom, and so she does the swear map, and then that leads her to do exactly that. She upstages the bride and yeah, groom. Yeah, yeah. She is the thing that everyone remembers about that wedding. From start to finish... I am my own worst enemy in this story. Okay. So the most haunting story that came into our inbox Mm -hmm. uh, was this one. And it's so embarrassing that the woman who sent it doesn't want us to use her real name. Okay. We're going to call her Maya. So Maya's taking the GRE this this last year so she could apply to grad school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because of COVID, she had to take it online in her home office. Right. But it's like a very regimented process just so they know they're not cheating. There's a proctor assigned to watch her through a webcam. 
So before the test, I have to give them a little tour of my testing space. I have to show under the desk, over the desk, the walls, just everything so that they know I'm not cheating. So we do that. Everything's good to go. I start the test. So partway through the test, she has this pain in her stomach. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, no. She's got to go. And she's got to go now. So she manages to hold it until the break. Mm -hmm. But then to her horror, the next break is just one minute long, right? So she messages the proctor and she's like, can I leave and come back in a minute? And he tells her. If you leave the frame, you will forfeit the test. (gasps) And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Either I leave now, I give up, I go to the bathroom and don't take the GRE, give up grad school. Or I do what I actually did. (laughs) What she actually does is she does the do on the floor. Wait, while staying on camera, like nothing is happening at all? Exactly. She, she, like, positions her arms on the chair. Stop with this mental image. I don't want to see it. Keep going with your story. (laughs) Which, so this is surprisingly a category unto itself. We heard from four other people who had to make this same call during a standardized test. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And made the same decision. Yeah. Oh, well, they tried to hold it, and it didn't work for them. So what happens? So she assumes the worst of it is over. She makes it all the way to the next break. It's a 10-minute break. Mm-hmm. She's allowed to leave the room. Oh, during that break? Yeah. But quickly, I realized that at the end of the 10-minute break, I had to once again give them this webcam tour of my testing area, including under my desk. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> So I realized, okay, the 10-minute break means cleaning this up. Keep in mind, you know, the proctor is still watching her through her webcam. So she has to army crawl across the room on the floor. Oh, to stay out of the camera's exactly, sight Exactly, exactly. But you got away with it, right? Like the proctor well, never saw, had no idea. So here's the thing. I was telling this story to some friends over Zoom. And I'm sitting at the same desk where I took the GRE and I told this story and obviously we're all laughing, whatever. And then one of my friends kind of like quietly waits for everything to die down and then says, is that a mirror behind you? (laughs) And it was, I have a full sized standing mirror behind me. And so I, I went back to the door of the room and crawled all the way in and reenacted everything. And all I could hear was them laughing. I wasn't even sure. I was like, could you see it or not? Could you see it or not? But they like weren't breathing. And so eventually someone said, yeah, you could see everything for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So the thing that sticks out to her about this story is it, it showed her new information about herself. The new information being? It, like what lows she's willing to stoop to. That's so interesting because I think of it in a much more positive way of like how far she'll go to get what she feels like she needs to get. That is not her take on it at all. That's one of the big things with these embarrassing stories is like people never take it the positive way for the most part. Oh. They always take it the way where they're like, I knew all my life something was wrong with me, and now I know. 
now forevermore, me getting into grad school is tainted by this experience. The thing that I can't get over with this is that it was it was a choice I made. It didn't happen to me. It was a choice. Does that make it better or worse? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> So Anna, like you're somebody who's super interested in embarrassment. Like you've thought about it a lot, you've experienced it a lot. Like, is there something that 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 going through a thousand of these stories uh, showed you that you didn't actually know before? People in these emails, they were tortured by these mistakes, right? Yeah. Totally embarrassed, and like often carried them their whole lives, and and sometimes they were really small mistakes. And reading them, I feel like it just made me think, like, oh, actually. I think the problem is that we think we're not supposed to make mistakes. Like, we think we're supposed to make it through this life without, like, you know, doing this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. And if you just say, like, you know what? Over the course of my lifetime, I'm going to trip and fall in public. My top is going to fly off when it's not supposed to. You just have to accept that that is part of it. That's part of the deal. I like that you're bringing this to a heartwarming ending. I know that you're being sarcastic, <laughs> but you're welcome. I want to share one last embarrassing story. Act four, putting the bare ass in embarrassing. Of all the kinds of embarrassing stories you sent in, one of the most common ones was a situation where you were a little bit naked or all the way naked in public. This is a common fear. One of the most frequent nightmares is the dream where you look down and realize you're naked in front of other people. Freud even wrote about it in The Interpretation of Dreams. He called it the embarrassment dream of nakedness and said, quote, I believe that the great majority of my readers will at some time have found themselves in this situation in a dream. When we feel embarrassed in our waking life, we often have this dream. The person in this next story, who wrote in from Nashville, has definitely had this dream. Her name is Cariad. She personally has no interest in being naked in public. In fact, even bathing suits are a stretch for her. I think people who have pool parties are total psychopaths. I don't understand. <laughs> why you would do that, you know? Ever since I was a kid, you know, luckily there aren't a lot in England, but I used to come here to visit my grandmother and people would throw pool parties and I'd be like, why? <laughs> and I still feel that way. Why are you doing this to all of yeah, us? Yeah, I don't want to go to the fucking beach for your goddamn birthday. <laughs> I The story you're about to hear happened years ago, when Cariad was living in New York City. She had just started seeing this guy she liked a lot. An emergency room doctor. Big personality, always smiling, reliable. He told a lot of funny stories about the ER. We're calling him Doug. The way she remembers it, they'd been seeing each other for about a month. They'd slept over at her place, and it's the first night she stays over at his. As Cariad is drifting off to sleep... I just remember being really, really tired and really needing to go to the bathroom. And that was kind of my last thought as I was falling to sleep was, oh, I really need to pee, but I can't be bothered to get up and, you know, find the bathroom. 
And then I had this dream that I really needed to go to the bathroom and I was looking for one and I couldn't find one anywhere. And I was pushing this big metal door in my search for the bathroom and it was locked and I couldn't get through and I was really, really frustrated. And then I woke up and I was naked, standing in a stairwell, pushing against a big door that went from the stairwell into the rest of the apartment building. Oh, my God. It was like my mind melted. Just the logic of the situation just, it made no sense. Cariad had sleepwalked out of Doug's apartment. Apparently, she'd done this as a small child, just a few times, though she had no memory of it at all. And she'd never sleepwalked as an adult. So it didn't occur to her that that's what's happened. I felt like I'd completely lost my mind. Like, how, like just how am I here? How is this a thing that is happening? How am I awake? Cariad pushes open the metal stairwell door and sees, to her relief, Doug's apartment at the end of the hall. She runs towards it. And then I realized, like, I don't know if this is his apartment. And I turned around and looked, and it was just one of those New York buildings. Just a bunch of apartments to each floor that all kind of looked the same. And I realized, like, I can't... This feels like a nightmare. (laughs) This does feel like... Absolute fucking nightmare. Carriad approaches the door she thinks is Doug's apartment, though she's not sure. So what I decide to do is knock on the door and then... I run away from the door back into the stairwell before they answer and put my ear to the door. I crack the door to the stairwell so I can hear them, but I can't see them. They can't see me. This way, if it's a voice I recognize, I can run around the corner and into the apartment. And if it's a voice I don't recognize, they won't see me. And hopefully they'll just close the door. That's a pretty brilliant plan. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I do that, and it is not a voice I recognize. And I start to realize the depth of the horror of the situation that I'm in. People are going to start getting up and going to work, and I cannot (laughs) be there when that happens. (laughs) By the way, I still really need to pee. Like, I (laughs) need to pee so badly that it woke me up and made me sleepwalk, you know? She decides the least conspicuous place to pee while naked is at the bottom of the stairwell, leaning against the door to the lobby. If someone tries to open the door, she can push back. And if someone's coming down the stairs, she'll hear them. So she swallows her pride and does it. I was just so horrified. I was so horrified. I remember very clearly just sitting down on this stairwell and just crying. This was just such a ridiculous situation that I couldn't get myself out of. And if only I had been more aware of my surroundings, I would have known that he was in apartment 2B or whatever it was. Like, how could I have not paid attention in the lift? And I remember, you know, drying my eyes and, like... 
couldn't even wipe my nose on my sleeve, you know, <laughs> wiping my nose on my arm and just thinking, all right, buck up. You have to take control of the situation and fix it. Like you do not have an option. You just have to fix it. And so I started very gently trying all of the doors in the apartment building. Her hope is whatever door she came out of will still be unlocked. And I went systematically floor to floor and I tried every door. And on the top floor, there was one apartment that I could hear voices in. And they were having a great time. It sounded like someone was having a party. If she can't find another solution, she thinks, I'm going to knock on this door. But first, she tries all the doors again. And then the answer occurs to her. Mailboxes. His name will be on his mailbox. She runs to the ground floor and sees through the door that the lobby is all glass windows. There's no way to get to the mailboxes without everyone in the street seeing her naked. So she heads back up to that party on the top floor, rings the bell, and then runs and hides behind the door. A woman comes out. She's clearly tipsy. Carrie calls to her, asking if she can come over to the stairwell, which the woman does. How are you even able to, like, cover or hide yourself? I mean, there really isn't it. It's just that cartoon, you know, one arm across your boobs. <laughs> <laughs> your little hand is a fig leaf. I mean, that's all you can do in that situation. Carriad explains her predicament and asks if she can borrow some clothes. The woman seems totally unfazed, like, of course, this happens all the time. She gestures for Carriad to come on in and walks back into the party. Carriad's like, wait, no, no, no. But the door's closing, so she reluctantly follows. Five people are there. They see her naked. Cariad dives behind a couch. The woman brings her a tracksuit. The whole party rallies to try and help Cariad solve this situation. She describes Doug to them. The woman thinks she knows where he lives. They knock on one or two doors, waking up neighbors who are not him. They call Cariad's cell, no answer. Eventually, the woman tells Cariad to just sleep on the couch. Carriad wakes up at 7 the next morning, tries her phone again, and gets an answer. And the person on the phone is not the guy that I had been with. It's somebody else. And they're really angry. And he kept saying, what's your name? What's your name? And I kept saying, I want to speak to, you know, this guy. And they wouldn't hand the phone over. And I was getting really pissed because I was like, well, who are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just give him the phone. And they said, what's your name? What's your name? And I said, Carriad. And then they said, what's your last name? And I said, Harmon. And then this guy gets on the phone. She means Doug. And he's just like, what the fuck? Where are... He's like really angry. It turns out, while Carriad had been running around the hallways naked, he'd woken up in the middle of the night to find Carriad's clothes, wallet, phone. But no Carriad. It was like she'd vanished. I talked to Doug. He didn't want to be on the radio, but here's what he said. He looked for her everywhere. He peeked into his roommate's room to see if maybe she'd accidentally crawled in their bed. Then he opened the fridge, then the oven, before catching himself and thinking, why would she be in the oven? Next, he searched the building. Outside the building, 
Eventually, he called one of her friends. They didn't know what to do. He thought, she's been gone long enough with no clothes on. This could be serious. By now, it was almost morning, so he called the police. They showed up 20 minutes later. He explained to them, I was out with this girl. She came back here. She appears to be lost. One of the officers started questioning him aggressively. He's not certain if they were just jerks, but he remembers thinking they were probably more suspicious of him because he was black. It went from zero to 100 fast. As Doug put it, I remember feeling like this is the most screwed up situation I've ever been in. This dude doesn't believe I'm telling the truth. Maybe he thinks I killed her. Just as things were escalating, Carrie had finally got through on the phone. Carrie takes the elevator down to Doug's floor. When she steps out, the police greet her. She realizes this is who'd answered the phone. Once she explains her side of the story, they leave, and it's just Carrie Ad and Doug. I think it took me a minute to recognize the gravity of what had happened to him. But I think once I really realized that at one point in the evening he was a suspect, like, oh, they they were not on your side, hmm. you know? That's funny. Um, That's like such a white person thing to think. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. Yeah. You know, I felt the gap. I felt how much we didn't really know each other in that moment. Um, but I just remember saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because he was genuinely very shaken up, you know, and um, and he being the lovely guy that he was, he was just like, I'm just, I'm glad that you're okay, but I have to get on with my day. They never went out again, though mostly because he moved across the country a few days later. This date had been planned as kind of a last night together, but they stayed in touch. A year later, when he came back to visit, he and Carrie Ed went to dinner with his friends. The gentleman that, that he is, I remember, you know, we were sort of chatting and he said, oh, I haven't told them about the story. And I said, oh, it's fine. If you want to tell them, you could tell me. He said, no, 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 no. I think he was worried about embarrassing me. And then I went to the bathroom and I came back and everybody was cracking up. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, I told him, I told him. Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> help it. And we all laughed about it. You know, he he also left that part out in order for it to be funny, you know. Since things came out okay in the end, they each tell it this way. At parties, they leave out the fear. So most of the embarrassing stories I've heard and collected for this week's show, the person does mm -hmm. something that results in their embarrassment, right? Like, mm -hmm. we have this lady, she saran wraps herself for a wedding. Uh, there's someone who <laughs> raises a paddle in an auction, you know, and it goes awry. And so, like, uh -huh. I, I get why they feel embarrassed. But you didn't yeah. do anything. Like, you didn't overstep. You didn't make a mistake. But you still feel yeah. embarrassed. Yeah. I suppose if you take blame off the table, it takes maybe a certain flavor of that embarrassment out. But it doesn't take the embarrassment away. There is something inherently embarrassing about running into a room full of people you don't know naked. 
Like it still happened to you? It still happened to me, yeah. I suppose I should feel pretty bulletproof now, shouldn't I? I think once something really like so embarrassing happens, I do think you sort of cross that that threshold somehow. And if if um if that's okay, like then why be embarrassed? And for a long time I would think, Cariad, like you got yourself out of this situation. You're not naked in a stairwell on the Lower East Side. Like you can figure this out. I like ending the show there. Someone who wasn't just embarrassed. She lived the experience that's like a metaphor for embarrassment. An experience most of us only know from nightmares. And came out better for it. I like thinking that's what embarrassment can do. program was produced today by me, Tobin Lowe, and Diane Wu. The people who put our show together include Bim Adewunmi, Susan Burton, Sean Cole, Andrea Lopez-Cruzado, Aviva de Kornfeld, Damien Grafe, Hannah Jaffe-Walt, Seth Lynn, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Elise Spiegel, Laura Starczewski, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Zwitala, Matt Tierney, and Chloe Weiner. Our managing editor, Sarah Abdurrahman, senior editor, David Kestenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to all the listeners who wrote in with their most embarrassing stories. Also, thanks to Lisa Pollock, Ari Saperstein, Henry Phillips, Will Sylvance, the Epilepsy Foundation, Kevin Allison, Frankie French, Kate and Aaron Anderson, Reagan Baker, Hope Rosenblatt, Brian Finkelstein, L. Birkenkemper, Emily Branton, Carmen Cuba, and Tara Westover. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to my boss, Ira Glass. You know, he told me he does the same thing every Saturday night. He watches the Eminem movie, Eight Mile, shotguns a tall boy, stares at himself in the mirror. And I just start rapping. I'm Elna Baker. Join us next week for more stories of This American Life. We could be a whole lot now.